Hello, welcome to the LifeBridge podcast. We exist to practice the way of Jesus, participating in God's kingdom coming in Dover as it is in heaven. My name is Tyler Saldana and I'm the pastor of our church community. We are so grateful that you're checking out our church's podcast. We pray that the Spirit uses this podcast to encourage you in your following of Jesus. Well, uh, this morning is week two of Advent, and we will be specifically talking about the theme of peace. That is what week two represents. But like last week, we're going to try again with a quick little table discussion to get us started. So, we've got two questions on the board. Feel free to pick one or both, but I encourage you with those around you, and if you don't have someone next to you, Just hop over to another table if you'd like. But let's take a couple minutes and let's spark the discussion for what we are going to talk about this morning. The first question, what does it look like for you to live in light of the peace on earth that Jesus brings? Or the prophet says the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. What does this say about God's plan for salvation? Let's give us a couple minutes. Go for it. Okay. Well, if we can wrap up our thoughts right here, we'll bring it back in. Uh, Before we move forward in the sermon, does anyone have anything from their table that stood out or that they'd like to share with the church this morning? Bob's gone. No, you're fine, Shirley. Any, anything st- stand out to any table this morning? It is totally okay if not, but... Okay. God came down to bring us peace. Mm. We didn't have to go up to him. Yeah, he came to us. Yeah, that's good, you yeah. know? Any other thoughts? Things stood out? Okay. Well, this is where we're going this morning, talking through some of these uh, components. But one of, one of my uh, favorite non-Jesus-centered Christmas song, I know that sounds like an oxymoron, uh, essentially one of my pop, favorite popular Christmas songs uh, is by John Lennon. Now, prior to the song's release in 71, uh, if you're unfamiliar with the context, uh, much protests had erupted in the U.S. due to our involvement in the Vietnam War. Now, at that point, the U.S. had been involved in the war for about six years when the song released, and we'd continue to be involved until 75. But one example of the nation's growing disapproval of the war took place actually just a few miles from here. Are we familiar with what happened at Kent State in 1970? Some of us are. Yes, uh, big protests happened there. Uh, One that was somewhat of a pivotal moment in particular because uh, unarmed civilians were killed by our National Guard uh, in light of it. The May 4th Visitor Center at Kent State reads, May 4, 1970 was the day the war came home. Now this tension would continue to steep within the U.S. Uh, So Lennon would a year later write this song that doubled as a Christmas song and an anti-war song. He and his wife, Yoko Ono, would also pay for ads across many major cities. Uh, oh, can we go back? I think we're, 
Yeah, you would pay for these ads across many major cities. War is over with the subtext, if you want it. Happy Christmas from John and Yoko. Now, in his song, he proposed a peace in the midst of this publicly troubling war. It was growing in disapproval ratings. And so, these are the, the lyrics I want to share with you. He, he writes, and so this is Christmas, and in the background, the choir is singing, war is over. For weak and for strong, if you want it, for rich and the poor ones, war is over. The road is so long now. The war is over now. And again, and so happy Christmas for black and for white, for yellow and red ones. Let's stop all the fight. And just so we're clear, he says happy Christmas because British people say happy Christmas. They don't say Merry Christmas. If you ever watch Harry Potter, that's where I learned that. Uh, anyways, was Lenin correct? Is war over now if we want it to be? Does Christmas truly bring peace on earth? Uh, this morning we continue in our Advent series. We're in week two, and we are both remembering and anticipating the coming of King Jesus and his kingdom. And with that being said, the second Sunday of Advent focuses on peace. So we're going to look at our passage briefly in Isaiah, and we will just walk through a couple of implications for this theme this morning. So, let's turn to Isaiah 11, verse 1. I'm going to adjust, because this is... Okay. The writer writes, A shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. This right here is a promise. If you're unfamiliar with Isaiah, Isaiah is one of the prophetic books, one of the major prophets. Uh, it's likely that Isaiah is a compilation of multiple Isaiahs. Um, we we kind of break them up into three Isaiahs, uh, but we call them all Isaiah. We, we actually think there's probably one Isaiah, but many people followed in his teaching lineage, uh, and they make up sort of the latter parts. But this is likely Isaiah 1. And he's writing this prophetic literature. Prophetic literature isn't just like telling the future or giving you the fort or like your fortune or giving you the lottery numbers as, as much as that would be awesome. Um, no, that's not what prophetic literature was. It is telling about God's coming reign, what that looks like and what that looks like for it to unfold and for us to participate in it, how it will unfold. So this is a promise of what is to come. Now, notice someone asked me already this morning, why Jesse? Who is Jesse? Do we know who Jesse is? Father of David. Now, this, give, this is a clue. Why wouldn't they say David? Typically, we'd say David. This gives us a clue potentially into the timing of the writing. David likely was not very popular. Contrary to our children's stories, David wasn't a very good person. Uh, he did a lot of messed up stuff. Uh, he has a couple wins, but he's also a human. And probably done a lot of things far worse than any of you have ever done. Uh, he's done some pretty interesting things. So when you refer to Jesse, not David, it's likely the writer kind of giving this subtle, hey, we, the, the people are sort of apathetic towards David at this point. So that's David's father, David and Goliath, that David, but also the David who would later sleep with someone else's wife, try and frame him and make it set up for him to have a baby with his wife, but really it's his child, and then because the guy was like, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that, then he sends him into battle to get killed, and then he marries that lady, and then later on he, he also takes someone else's wife. Like, he, he does some pretty messed up stuff. Let's, we don't need to glorify him to our kids. 
Um, he is just a human. He is not Jesus. He points to Jesus, but he is not Jesus. And so that is who we're talking about here. He's saying this is coming up in David's line. And the stump there is a key indicator for us too. A stump meaning it got chopped down, meaning we've got to cut off. There's something that had to happen, something the tree was not producing good fruit. It indicates that out of the remnant, though, hence again why we're referring to Jesse and not David, that because of the way they were living, there kind of needed to be a clean breaking point. But there will be a path. This is a promise, a path through a seemingly dead end. And for us, the, the thing that's interesting about a stump, right? Especially an old tree. I don't know if you have ever spent time. I was always fascinated to learn about the rings and then to count them and things like that. Uh, I think that's symbolic to us, right? We're tempted to count the rings, to look back. The good old days. The way it was. But no, God is inviting us forward. Something coming out of that. But we are not to go back to the rings. We are going forward into the kingdom. The good old days never were. <laughs> there was no something we should return to in God's kingdom. We are going forward into the coming recreation here on earth. He keeps going in Isaiah, verse 2. He says, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest on him. If you recall this, this is what uh, is said of Jesus, right? When he first, when the ministry, when he first begins his ministry, where he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Or even when he's baptized, right? That the Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. The Spirit being upon them, this was common throughout the Old Testament with the Spirit would be upon kings, leaders, prophets, judges. And this would help them fulfill their calling. But this is to be an indicator for us, pointing forward of what Jesus would later fulfill. Isaiah keeps going, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of, of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears see, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek on the earth. He shall strike the earth with a rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. It's getting a little hard here, but the main responsibility of kings in the ancient world was to establish justice, set the tone. And so this is this righting of the wrongs. This is reorienting, bringing everything, all of creation, back into congruence with God's character and the way of Jesus. That's what these are all, these are all little symbols here going on, but we don't need to dwell too much if you want to do more study on them. What they're all pointing to is a bringing back things in line. It's kind of like if you, um, parent, I mean, we got this a lot right now with a toddler, that sometimes you just kind of let the house go to a wreck. And you're like, it's fun, just let it go, whatever. There's stuff everywhere, there's food on the ground. I don't, for me, I'm like, what the heck? But I have to just let it be. But then at the, end of the, at the end of whatever that time is, for me it's probably like 10 minutes, I'm like, okay, let's rein it back in. Let's put things away. Let's, let's bring things back into order. That's what is being said here. That is what is being foretold here. That this coming king would 
bring things back into order. Keep going in verse 5. Righteousness shall be the belt around his waist, and faithfulness the belt around his loins. The wolf shall live with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp, and, he weaned, and the weaned child shall put its hand on the adder's den. He's portraying these like utopian-like conditions. This community, this world where death is no more, where you don't have to fear anything, whether it be human or animal. For me, I still have a hard time in particular because I, I despise snakes. Um, so to think of my little kid playing at the asps hole, like, no thank you. Um, but it communicates this, it portrays this, that predator and prey are dwelling together. Rich and poor, young and old, friend and foe, they are dwelling together. There is this unification here. Now, this is a common ancient world image for a peaceful community. This type of writing here is, is pretty common in a lot of ancient Near Eastern writing. Um, they have similar illustrations of vegetarian animals and bears that won't eat their typical prey, uh, but it is pointing to this restoration, this thing where death is no more, decay is no more. And then in verse 10, he writes, On that day the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal to the peoples. The nations shall inquire of him, and his dwelling shall be glorious. So this passage for us in Isaiah foretells the harmony and shalom on earth, this peace. Paul wrote about it in Colossians 1.20. He writes, He, Jesus, reconciled all things to himself through him. Whether things on earth or in the heavens, he brought peace through the blood of his cross. He brought peace through the blood of his cross. And so the advent of Jesus brought, continues to bring, and will bring, ultimately bring peace within us, between us, and through us. Let's walk through these three. So peace within us. We who are in Christ, we've received an inner peace now, right? If you are in Christ, you are no longer at odds with God. You are at peace with Him, and you can be at peace uh, with yourself. You might have this inner tension, it, it kind of unfolds because of this, right? Our flesh and our resurrected self. But still, our ultimate state, our ultimate, ultimate posture is peace. Peace with God, and we are able to be okay with who we are because we know God is making us new. That doesn't mean we become complacent and we become static and, and don't ever grow or become more like Jesus. But still, we don't, our identity, who we are, is no longer set or based upon our own uh, perception of ourselves or the perceptions that others have of us. Paul wrote to the Roman Jesus followers, he says, Therefore, since we have been made righteous through his faithfulness, we have peace with God through 
our Lord Jesus Christ. So no longer are we at odds with God or God's character or his kingdom. Instead, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. And because we have the Spirit of God within us now, we are dwelling, we are a dwelling place of peace. Thus, from there, the advent of Jesus brings peace between us, between us who are in Christ. God has broken down the countless walls that humanity has erected over the tens of thousands of years. Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, he wrote uh, in Ephesians 4, verse 12, he wrote, At that time you were without Christ. You were aliens rather than citizens of Israel and strangers to the covenant of God's promise. In this world you had no hope and no God. But now, thanks to Christ Jesus, you who once were so far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Christ is our peace. He made both Jews and Gentiles into one group. With his body, he broke down the barrier of hatred that divided us. And similarly to the church in Galatia, Paul wrote, there is, no, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is literally saying whatever classifications and, and, and divisions that people have erected throughout human generations that separate us, that divide us, that are meant to empower some and devalue others, there's no longer these dividing walls. That's not how it was. That's not how he intended it to be. We are no longer defined by these dividing classifications. The coming of Jesus has made us individual dwelling places of peace, and since we are in Christ, we together are to be dwelling places of peace. Now, does this mean that we won't hurt or offend one another? No, right? We definitely will continue to do all those things, hopefully not intentionally, but if we do, hopefully we repent of that. However, remembering the advent of Jesus allows us to anticipate and even enact that advent peace on earth. This means that we make peace with one another as Jesus made peace with us. So as Joel pointed out, uh, we didn't have to go to Jesus. Jesus came to us. We are to go to others to make peace, to make amends. Now Jesus was not a peacekeeper. He was a peacemaker. There's a difference. What is that difference? Well, peacemakers work to create peace while peacekeepers hold on for dear life, just trying to maintain this facade, this aroma of peace that keep the tension temperatures down, but you know, you, you took the kettle off the burner, but it's still hot back there, right? You still don't want your little kid to touch it. There's, it's still warm, and all it takes is putting it right back on the burner, and the boil will come within a matter of moments. That is peacemakers, or that is peacekeepers. Peacemakers are what we are called to be. Proverbs 10.10 reads, People who wink at wrong cause trouble, but a bold reproof promotes peace. A bold reproof promotes peace. This means that when people, when we see the air of people around us sways, in particular this is in-house in the church, and we wink, or we bat our eyes, or we're just kind of complacent with it, we're okay with it, 
we cause trouble. But a bold reproof promotes peace. We are to be iron that sharpens iron. We are to be people who in love come to one another and express where there is tension and try and resolve it. That's why Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount said, Happy are people who make peace because they will be called God's children. Or as the NLT translates it, God blesses those who work for peace. I like that too, peace workers. For they will be called the children of God. The advent of Jesus brings peace within us, between us, and therefore through us to the outside world, to those outside of the faith at this point. As we keep our eyes on Jesus, and as we remember His coming and anticipate His future coming, we can enact peace here and now through us. We are to be instruments, vessels, agents of peace. But how do we do this? How do we become agents of peace? For starters, I think it starts with what we just talked about. Enacting and and seeking to have peace within us and between us. How can we bring a gospel of peace outside these walls if we are at odds within us? So we are to model that, to live into that, to accept that, to, to press on and make that our own. One of the main reasons people don't accept peace on earth is because they constantly see all the war in the church. Is it any wonder that so many find it difficult to believe in the Prince of Peace? Or we hear that expression, right? I, I love Jesus. I like Jesus, but I don't like the church. I can't blame them, right? We can't blame them. We've got to own that. And we have to work, we have to make, we have to strive towards a different way. Why? Because Jesus already did it. We don't have to be. War is over in our midst. And every church has their own issues of this sort, and we have to come to grips with our own too. And we have to reflect on that. Just like we and ourselves individually, we have to own our own shortcomings, our ways that are incongruent with the way of Jesus or the character of God. The unfortunate thing is that if we refuse to see it or to ask others' input of it, we can become, as Jesus put it, focused on pointing out the speck in others' eyes, right? Those outside the church, their specks, or even within the church, But we don't even realize we've got a giant log in our own eye. We are to be agents of peace, not war. Speak highly of others, not slander or gossip or questions in one character. Speak the truth in love, not whisper and call and message each other. Later in Paul's letter to the Colossian Jesus followers, he wrote, Therefore, as God's choice holy and loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Be tolerant with each other. And if someone has a complaint against anyone, forgive each other. As the Lord forgave you, so also forgive each other. And over all these things put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. The peace of Christ must, must, Control your hearts, 
We Western individualistic people, we don't like being controlled. This says it must control our hearts. We don't want anyone to control us. My rights, America. No, no, no. You gave up your rights at the cross. We must be ruled, controlled by the peace of Christ. A peace into which you were called into one body and be thankful people. We are to be ruled, controlled by this peace of Christ. But that is where the blessing comes. That's where the fruit comes. That's how we become, we have peace within us, between us, and then through us. This is how we become agents of change, according to Paul. He speaks of three things. Just want to break three components of it. He says this looks like listening. Essentially is what I get from this. He says, this looks like listening to others. So those of us, whether it be in the church or in particular, if we're being peace agents through us, outside the walls, people who are different from us, people who have different worldviews or faiths, we are to listen. One way this, this looks, I learned a lot in counseling, in particular with a, with a teenage daughter doing family counseling. Uh, I had to learn how to ask questions and to hear um, because I didn't know there was a right way to ask questions. So we're, we're to ask open-ended questions. This doesn't mean, why are you such a sinner? Like, that's not a great question. That's not a good starting point, right? No. <laughs> With someone out there who's different than you or living a life or has a different worldview than a Christian, that's probably not the best way to start. Hey, why are you so messed up? Why are you so much worse than I am? Like, what? No. Questions like, or, or statements like, hey, can you tell me about yourself? Tell me about your story, your lived experience. What is it like? What's it like? That's what my counselor often had me ask my teenage daughter. What's it like to feel that way or to live that way or to your experience that this is the way life works? In particular, who have different uh, beliefs or experiences or attractions or things of that sort. What's it like? That's incarnational ministry. That's what Jesus did, right? That's why Jesus got in our skin. That's why Jesus came amongst us. It's the one thing that distinguishes Jesus from other potential false deities, right? Is that Jesus became like us. He became God incarnate. He didn't he didn't stay up there. He came to us. He became like us to see what it's like to live our experiences, to embody that, to not make assumptions. And even still, sometimes, I, I mean, I'll tell you this, especially as, man, it, it does seem, and I'm sure we all feel this, culture uh, goes far quicker than I can handle. Um, and it's part of my job to keep up with culture. Um, but some of these ideas and things like that and worldviews and values, it's hard to keep up, right? It's constantly changing and evolving. An easy way to ask a question, yeah, the telling, telling me what it's like, or, but own when you're unfamiliar. Own when you're unfamiliar. Don't make presumptions. It's a way to get in and just befriend and try and understand, get in someone's shoes. The second thing Paul says is tolerate. Tolerating. Now, tolerance is this word thrown around a lot, in particular in a uh, pluralistic society, meaning we just need to accept everyone. We've seen the coexist bumper stickers that have all the different religions and worldviews on it, and we, we all just kind of need to accept everyone. Um, it, unless they don't accept everyone, then we don't accept you. 
Um, it's a relativistic problem. It, it doesn't, it's a logical fallacy. But still, toleration, tolerance within the scriptures is different. Tolerance doesn't mean condoning someone's character or actions that are incongruent with God's character or his kingdom. No, instead, tolerance means trying to understand and empathize. That's where the, tell me what it's like. Like, I, I have no idea what it's like to live in your shoes, to have grown up in a household like yours, to be dealing with addiction or something of that sort, whatever it may be. Tell me what it's like. Help me understand. And in that, as you're hearing, prayerfully asking, and, and even in the weeks as you're befriending someone, or man, maybe you have a hard time. Some of you have owned, I have a hard time with understanding this community. I just don't get it. Prayer. Ask God, help me. As you sought to understand me in my brokenness, help me go, help me understand their shoes. That's what tolerance looks like. So it's not necessarily saying, yay, hip hip hurrah, like I, I agree with everything. No, no, no. It's just trying to understand, empathize, be right there with them. The other thing in regards to tolerance, we are to remember grace. Remember grace. I'll tell you this, what, uh, one of my best friends, um, he's, uh, he's same-sex attracted, he's a Christian guy, uh, but he doesn't uh, believe that it's in congruence with the way of Jesus. And I'll tell you, I have no idea what it's like, but for, I've been best friends with him for over a decade, and I continue to just befriend him and try and ask, because I have no, and, and I've had to say that before him as we've gotten into talks, or over drinks or coffee or something like that, when we've gotten into hours-long talks, Dealing with the tension, the ups and downs, the ins and outs of it. I'll say, I have no idea what it's like to feel this way, to be drawn this way. I don't know. Can you help me understand what's that like? What's that tension like? Similarly, I've felt when in people in my own sin experiences, my own addictions, uh, the, the people who I trust and invite into my life are the people who don't judge me, don't tell me I'm out, but, tell, but come to me and ask, what's that like? What's it like? When you're there, what, what are you feeling? What's, what's going through your head and hearts? What's going on in your life? What is that like? I, I don't understand it. Help me understand. Do you see how that's empathetic? That, that can be de-escalating for someone? That's where that grace we need to remember grace, that there's nothing that I did to be in my position and to have my victories and my struggles. To have my areas where, man, that's not an issue for me, but over here, man, I've got my own things. And culture right now says this one, we need to make the, the ultimate, and so they're out. But man, in another generation, my sin might have been the, you're out. You can't be in here. So, I did nothing to be in this position. That's grace too. Remember that. Nothing we did to be in our position. We are saved. We are made. We are maintained. We are preserved by God's grace alone. And this is very difficult to remember this, especially when interacting with those of different worldviews or life experiences. But that is what we are to do according to this passage from Paul. So we got listening, tolerating, and then forgiving. Forgive as Christ forgave. Forgive as Christ forgave. The penalty has been paid. 
So who are we to hold on to the punishment? Who are we to be the arbiter of carrying out judgment if the penalty has been paid? If we believe that, then we don't need to enact punishment on those who have wronged us or we're at odds with. So if someone asks for forgiveness from you, forgive them as Jesus forgave you. It may take time, but we are to seek that. That is part of being agents of peace. Now we live in what some sociologists have referred to as outrage culture. We're familiar with this term, yes? Outrage culture. We see it, we probably feel it. It's so easy to fall in line, even for Christians. Uh, every day it seems like there's something new that we can get brought into on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or email or text or phone calls or whatever it may be. There's always something. There's a new opportunity to be mad about everything. To not bring heaven on earth, but hell on earth, right? We always have an opportunity. Guess what? No, duh. Sin's real. <laughs> like, of course we have that opportunity. Everywhere we look, there's something that we could be outraged over. It's so easy to fall in line with this. Or to just reject anyone around that conversation. Neither is great. But Jesus follows, we're to become agents of peace, not troops in the culture wars. I don't know about you, but I've yet to meet someone who's come to faith because we fundamentalist Christians held the line and demanded public adherence to our faith. Have you? Have you met someone that was like, hey, Starbucks put a Christmas tree back on their cups. Someone got saved. No, that's not a thing. That's not a thing. I don't know about you, but that's not the gospel message, and nor is that the means of the gospel message. Hey, in and out still has Bible verses on the bottom of their cups. Cool. But that doesn't... <laughs> I've never met someone that's been like, I read John 3.16 at the bottom of an in and out soda cup, and so I got saved. I have met, when we are outraged over certain culture things, people who say... That's it right there, and that's why I'm out. That's why I'm out. The more we as Christians enlist in the culture wars, the more I see people leave the church. Of this, uh, one writer and pastor, uh, Jared Bias, writes, For me, defending God means letting go of Merry Christmas so my non-Christian neighbors feel respected when I invite them into the holiday table. Now, he lives in a primarily non-cultural context, so this might be a little different for us, but again, try and learn his lived experience or learn from. He says, for me, keeping the Christ in Christmas is not about winning the culture war, but about losing it. Given statements about the first being the last and given his way of death, it seems Jesus' goal was more about losing than winning. It was his unwillingness to fight the sinners that was often the most powerful weapon in his arsenal. And it was often this unwillingness to fight that most upset the religious people. When Peter declared that it was finally time to, quote, stand up for what I believe, Jesus rebuked his willingness to fight, healed the person Peter lashed out against, who had cut off his ear, and submitted himself to arrest. The point of Jesus' mission in the world was to lose, not to win. And get this, it was in losing fights that he won people. In a world where Christians are labeled as being against everything in our culture, what a powerful argument for God 
when we confound their expectations and come to battle, not with a sword, but with a towel and a basin. If you're unfamiliar, that's alluding to Jesus washing the disciples' feet, one of which who would rat him out, sell him to be killed later that last night, and all 11 of which, who would, other 11, would abandon him and turn their backs on him. I love that, though, that Jesus' mission in the world was to lose, not to win. And it was in losing the fights that he won people. Uh, conversations I've had with quite a few of you over time, um, man, I get it. It gets really hard, and in particular us, we've been in a population of, of privilege in a, in a Western culture, in American culture, right, of Christian being the main thing, but as it is slowly becoming not, one, we do have to ask, why is it not becoming not? Again, perhaps it's because we're forcing things on people, like Jesus forced on us, right? No. So perhaps that's, one, why the church is dying in America, but two, we have to see this example here that Jesus already won the war. Jesus already won the war. The war is over. Colossians 2 says the enemy has been disarmed. He's powerless against the church. The war is over. There are little battles, but perhaps we are called to lose some battles to win the people. And I learned that again in counseling with my teenage daughter. It was amazing how many times I went into counseling and it was like, I went in thinking, yeah. I sent them a long email and I'm like, hey, this is all the things my daughter, that she's done wrong and she's done all this. And man, every time it was like, I walked away and it was all me. <laughs> it was all my stuff somehow, huh? Aaron? Yeah. <laughs> but man, I'm pointing out all these things, all these things that are bugging me and it's like, well, it was a result of my own sin, my own judgment, my own <sighs> endeavors to win the war instead of losing little battles with my daughter that I would win her heart. Fred Geiser of Luther Seminary writes, though looking to the future, it had a present effect in the 8th century, he's referring to this Isaiah audience, and can have one today as well. What if we chose now to live in the freedom of the promise in accord with its pictures of God's future kingdom? God keeps showing us a world of peace where rulers and people care for one another, for the poor and the needy, for creation and all its creatures. What if we moved into that world even now? True, our world remains compromised and dangerous. And we will have to deal with that in appropriate ways. But to the degree we are given the courage, we can invite God's future into the present and practice it even now. So we remember, but we anticipate, and we start bringing and ushering in Advent now. So what's a practice, with that being said, from the way of Jesus that can aid us as we journey through this Advent season. Uh, one one I, I'm highlighting in particular because this has a lot here, in order to become agents of peace through us, we have to accept peace within us and strive for peace between us, among us. And so practice, I think, uh, is 
uh, some call it confession or transparency. This is something that in counseling I've had to utilize before many times, uh, but definitely in my own life, owning where I fall short. Or perhaps owning where I've been hurt by someone. Now I challenge each of us to practice moving from peacekeepers to peacemakers this week and in this season. Are you avoiding a difficult talk because you don't want things to get in the way? You're worried about what happened, what might happen. You don't want to break the relationship. Guess what? The relationship isn't very strong if that's going to break it. And I've always found that confession and hard conversations like this actually forge deeper bonds with my spouse, with my teenager, with my elders, whatever it may be, with my friends. This is a practice that we often neglect. The, the Protestant Reformation did a lot of great things, but one of it is that it uh, kind of threw out a lot of things from the Roman Catholic Church. Confession should not be one of them. We are to confess our sins to one another, and we are to own when someone else hurt us. These are practices in the Scriptures. These are not done once and for all. These are ways that humble us, not because we're earning our salvation, or anything, or even earning one's forgiveness, they may not give it to you. They don't have to, especially if they're not a Christian. But our role is to be faithful in following Jesus, in seeking to make amends, bringing peace on earth. And that means starting with our relationships. So I challenge us to do this, to, to move from peacekeepers to peacemakers, prayerfully ask the Spirit for help, Perhaps there's a conversation you've been putting off with someone who've either hurt you or you've hurt. And if you've hurt someone, just putting those three things from Colossians into practice, allow them space to speak. Don't get defensive. Typically what I've been advised is when I allow them to speak, in particular when I, I know my temperature's already a little bit up, it's not even on the burner yet and it's already cooking, you know what I mean? That first time around, just let them talk and say thank you for sharing. If you're the one who's sharing, I encourage you. What I've been told is don't say you did this. Say I feel hurt when this happened. Uh, use I statements, not you statements. That's what my pastoral counselor has advised, and I find that to be, again, disarming, not assertive. Because when you start saying you did this, you are attacking. You, that is a defense mechanism. You did this, rather than I felt hurt when blank. It bummed me out when this. And know this, you don't need to make excuses. If, especially in the church, we don't need to make excuses. Don't say I was tired, blah, 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 blah. No, 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 we know we're all messed up. Can we own that? If you're a Christian, you're owning that you are a sinner. You are in desperate need of Jesus. I am in desperate need of Jesus. And so I don't get why. I do it too, but I don't get why we get hung up on it. It bugs me when I'm like, why do I feel like I need to like make little half excuses? Don't do it. Don't do it. Just own it. We know we all mess up. The cross tells us that. But recount how you've hurt them, ask for forgiveness, and go forth in peace, being led by the Spirit to live differently. And if someone's hurt you, you can bring it to that person's attention 
but be careful not to be condemning. Again, instead of saying, you hurt me, say, I feel hurt when, or I felt hurt when. How much does the world need the peace of Jesus? How much does our city, or our places of work, our homes, our church, how much do we need the peace of Jesus? Remember, we have peace with God through Jesus. We have been given peace within us that creates peace between us and through us for God's glory and for the joy of all people. War is over if you want it. While his faith may have been misplaced, I think John Lennon was onto something. The war is over if we want it. It's almost a gospel statement, right? That kind of is how the gospel was pronounced early on. The kingdom of darkness has lost. The war is over. Accept it if you want it. The war within us, the war between us, the war that spreads through us. Now, one of my favorite modern Christmas songs that is Christ-centered, not just this pop Christian song, or Christmas song, one that's more intentionally rooted in the gospel is by a gentleman named Dustin Kensrew. One of you might know him as the singer from Thrice. One of you. <laughs> a, uh, a rock band from the early 2000s. He later came to faith and on a solo record, a song entitled, This is War, he sings of the possibility of peace in the midst of a publicly troubling war. Kendrew sings, This is war like you ain't seen. This winter's long, it's cold and mean. With hangdog hearts, we stood condemned, but the tide turns now at Bethlehem. This is war and born tonight. The word is flesh, the Lord of light. The Son of God, the low-born King, who demons fear, of whom angels sing. And this is war on sin and death. The dark will take its final breath. It shakes the earth, confounds all plans, the mystery of God as man. Isaiah's passage points us to the coming peace that Christmas brings. Centuries later, the angels would announce the birth of Jesus to a group of shepherds in a field. Glory to God in heaven and on earth, peace among those whom he favors. Thanks for tuning in to the LifeBridge podcast. For more information about our church, please visit lifebridgedover.org. There you'll be able to find out more about the church community, our ministries, ways to get involved, recommended resources, and to give. Be sure to subscribe to receive new episodes directly into your podcast feed. While we are glad that you're checking out our podcast feed, we believe that the New Testament teaches that church worship is to be experienced weekly, in person, within your local church community. Thus, we encourage you to either join us in person for Sunday morning worship or to find and commit to a local gospel-centered church community in your neighborhood. Thanks.